Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Engage with Eagle Forum. I'm Kirsten Hassler, Eagle Forum's Executive Director, and I'm joined by my friends, Tabitha Walter, our Political Director. Hi. And Glenn McKay, an Eagle Forum Board Member and former Executive Director. Hello. As you've heard us mention a few times, we are working through a variety of issues that present problems of racial justice and disparity in our country. One of these issues is abortion. And I think when we say we're pro-life, it invokes a lot of assumptions, like we only care about the baby or the mother, or we wanna take rights away from women, especially those who need help. When in reality, this is an issue that affects all facets of our society. And to expound on this point, we are pleased to welcome on the show, Roland Warren. Hello. Roland is the president and CEO of CareNet, a nonprofit that seeks to empower men and women to choose life for their unborn child and find abundant life in Christ. Roland is a graduate of Princeton University and he received an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He has extensive experience in the corporate world working for IBM, PepsiCo, Goldman Sachs, and Princeton, and was previously the president of the National Fatherhood Initiative. He's also a well-known public speaker, and he and his wife have two sons. Roland, it's great to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad, glad to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah. Well, to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you made the jump from working for organizations like Goldman Sachs to leading CareNet? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, as, as, you, as you mentioned, I uh, did my undergraduate work at Princeton, um, and um, when I graduated from Princeton, uh, went to work for IBM and did sales and marketing stuff there. And then from there to Pepsi and then uh, did a stint at Princeton doing development work. And then uh, God called me uh, to Goldman Sachs. <laughs> so I thought, well, that, that's a you know great Jewish firm that uh, has gold and they carried it in Sachs. This has to be God's plan for my life. <laughs> so, I, so I thought that where I you know, kind of thought, you know, I didn't grow up with a whole lot. But uh, so I thought, well, this is where God has me. And um, while I was, um, you know, working for uh, Princeton and uh, and Goldman, um, I uh, I went to an event that was focused on fathers, and uh, there was a guy there who worked for an organization that was really just getting off the ground at that time called National Fatherhood Initiative, and we just kind of struck up a, a conversation. He gave me his card, and you know, I checked it out uh, a few months later and got a chance to speak with the the guy who was the founder, and just was blown away. Um, I grew up in a um, home without my father, um, and um, so I knew, you know, uh, firsthand what it what it's like and how difficult it can be for mothers and children in that setting. And then also, uh, um, got my girlfriend pregnant when we were at Princeton. So we, uh, uh, which ties to another part of my story. And so uh, we got married and had our our oldest son. Uh, oldest son Jamin, but uh, she was uh, strongly encouraged at that time to, you know, have an abortion. Um, that how, how would she graduate from Princeton with a baby? How would she go on to do anything uh, that she wanted to do, which was to be a doctor with a baby, etc. Anyway, long story short, she we gra she did graduate with two babies, not one. Actually, both of our sons were born while we were undergraduates. At, well, she was an undergraduate at Princeton. I just graduated and went on to become a doctor, and she's been practicing for 25 years or so. So, you know, we saw firsthand how, um, you know, certainly it's it's possible. So the, the fatherhood um, story was one of sort of a river that ran through me, understanding the impact of father absence, uh, the benefits of father involvement, uh, experiencing that myself, and then being challenged uh, to be a father when I was 20 years old, um, having grown up without one. So all that together. Anyway, so that's the other path that was going on. 
at the time that I got to Goldman, and then when I got to Goldman, I was on the board of National Fatherhood Initiative, and the guy who was uh, heading up, um, uh, who, who was the founder, came to me and said, hey, you know, what do you think about leaving Goldman Sachs uh, for National Fatherhood Initiative? And I was like, oh, this is, you know, they have gold and they carry it in sacks here, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, but anyway, God, God prevailed, uh, thankfully, and I really felt uh, called to leave uh, Goldman to, to go to, to National Fatherhood Initiative. So I really started working on helping men be better dads uh, with that organization and um, really helping connect fathers to the hearts of their kids uh, and talking a lot about uh, the benefits of fathers being married to the mother of their kids. Mm-hmm. And, and during that time, um, um, struck up a partnership with, with CareNet because CareNet is, is an organization that has a network of 1,100 pregnancy centers across the U.S. and Canada. And I you know, was looking for organizations that were at the nexus of children and family that maybe should be thinking about the fatherhood issue, but maybe hadn't connected it to, um, to their vision and mission. And so I went to go see my predecessor's predecessor and said, hey, what are you doing to engage fathers? And they said nothing. And I thought, wow, okay. And I knew just from my own personal experience that although legally it was my wife's body and her choice legally, that my decision to be a husband to her and a father to our child impacted that choice. And frankly, uh, was a key way that God, key thing that God used uh, to um, help her accomplish her dreams. So I just knew that intuitively, didn't know any of the data about it or anything like that. And, and that really uh, inspired me to work with, with CareNet. And, and then several years later, I got approached about um, leaving National Fatherhood Initiative to come to CareNet. And uh, really was delighted to do that because it brings together, you know, two sort of core issues for me. I feel like William Wilberforce with those two great objects, the reparation of manners and the abolishment of slavery. For me, it's really protecting uh, those who are unborn, but also help make, helping to make sure that they have involved responsible, committed fathers. So I, those are my two great objects. Uh, and CareNet is, is, for me personally, just a great uh, ministry for me to bring those things together. That's a fabulous story. Uh, And there's a lot of your story that we really want to unpack during this episode. So let's start with um, back to when you found out that you were going to be a father. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sure you felt social pressure. You you said that your wife was pressured to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a lot of people judged you because you you guys were unwed parents. Um, How did you cope personally with that pressure and ultimately come to the the decision that you did. Yeah, you know, I, you know, we, you know, we loved each other and we, we planned to get married, you know, and we, we wanted to do that. Um, but, you know, we were Christians, so there was the embarrassment of that, you know, and my wife was uh, one of the good girls. And so, uh, and so, you know, that was, you know, incredibly embarrassing uh, to her. Um, I'm black, which you can see, uh, this isn't just for the, the video, I do this all <laughs> Like just every morning I wake up and I'm just like, oh, again. But anyway, and my, my wife is not. She's Mexican, um, uh, came from San Antonio, very strong. If you've ever been there, know about San Antonio, very strong Mexican culture. Uh, they are not the minority in, in San Antonio, that's for sure. So she came from that background. And so, you know, there was real issues there. My mom had been uh, a teen mom as well. She got pregnant with my older brother when she was 16, 17. So uh, she really felt was very concerned about, you know, here's here's, you know, her son going to Princeton. I was the first person in my family uh, to ever graduate from uh, from college. So, you know, it all being derailed, and she's kind of like been there, done that. You know, <laughs> you know, got the T-shirt. So there was just a lot of pressure uh, from that perspective. But 
you know, you know, you don't want to compound one mistake with two mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think at least from, from the CareNet perspective, I didn't know it at the time. I couldn't articulate it this way, but we just knew um, that, um, that, that, that our son was not a life uh, worth sacrificing, but he was a life worth sacrificing for. Wow. And, and that really inspired us. And, you know, and I think, you know, when we look back on it now, I mean, God really used that whole experience to help us grow both as a couple early on in our marriage, but also in our faith. And I know other people who've made the different decision. And, um, you know, uh, often, more often than people want to talk about, you know, there's, there's uh, regret, a significant regret. When you have the abortion, you know, uh, typically women will say, well, I feel relief. And the guy will say, well, I feel relief. And I understand that. But typically there's this, what I call the relief regret crossover, where relief is very high when you do it. But then over time, regret starts to come up and they cross over at some point. And all you're left with is regret. And I've talked to too many women and men who, who have that particular situation. So I'm thankful that, um, you know, that God protected us from that, that perspective. So, yeah, it was, it, there was certainly, um, uh, you know, an embarrassment factor, a pressure factor. And then once we got married, um, our parents uh, no longer supported us financially. So we were on our own. And, uh, and God provided, you know, we, you know, we got a lot thinner and, uh, you know, <laughs> just, you know, we look back on it now and yeah, I think, I think it's just, you know, it's, it's just one of the blessings of youth. We were not afraid, which we probably should have been at some level, but we just knew God had us and, uh, we just walked in, in, in that promise and, and, uh, we're thankful to God that, that he did. Um, can I go back to the relief regrets? crossover would you say it's the opposite when you decide to choose life i never thought about it that that um um that's interesting i never thought about it that way but you could certainly you could certainly see that um i i do think you know one of the things that we do as humans um is that we we have this tremendous um flawed um framework that we use and and we we understand that actions have consequences that's nothing revolutionary or unique about that. But what we don't realize is that um, actions have consequences and we have no control over the consequences of our actions. Mm-hmm. So that that's lit. We think we do, but the reality is that we have 100% control of our actions, 0% control of the consequences of our actions. And what we tend to do when we're making a, a decision that's not a godly decision is spend more of our time saying, thinking about how we're going to deal with the consequences than the action itself. And we have no control over the consequences because any act that you do to control the consequences is another act that has another set of consequences which you can't control. So the relief regret framework really is basically basically that. Like you, you, you think that you know, you've kind of game planned this out. I'm gonna abort this baby and there'll be no issues. I can just move on with my life. When the reality is that, um, look, my wife has regretted a haircut I mean, so I mean, like I'm just like like folks on the other side, like just let's, let's just be honest about this. I mean, to say that a woman would not have regret at any point ever mm-hmm. is it's just I mean, it's 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 intellectually dishonest. I mean, how many things have you done that you thought at the time was a good thing to do, and you have regret later? I mean, it happens all the time, I and mean, certainly when you're abort- aborting a child that's bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh, how could you possibly not? 
uh, have that situation. And that crossover comes at different points. I remember when I first started with CareNet, I met with an older gentleman and I asked him why he was engaged with CareNet. And uh, they were younger in the, you know, kind of 70s, 60s, 70s when abortion was, you know, just starting. And, and he said, you know, my wife and I, we got married and, you know, we were younger and she got pregnant and we had all these things we wanted to do. And so we decided we were going to have the abortion and we'll just have children later. Well, they never were able to have children ever again. Mm-hmm. Now, if in that moment, somebody would have said to you, listen, oh, by the way, um, before you abort this child, I just want to let you know, this is the only one you're going to get. It's the only one you're getting. It's just this one. So we can move forward. I suspect that they wouldn't have. But in their mind, they thought that they could control the consequences mm-hmm. of their actions when they didn't. So that's why God judges us, not based on the consequences of our actions so much, but on the actions themselves, because he knows that the consequences are always in, in his hands. So I really try to stress that point when I, when I, uh, with, with myself <laughs> and also when I, particularly when I talk to young people and others, I, I, that you have zero control over the consequences of your actions. And, and, and we tend to ascribe to ourselves the most positive consequence to any action that we do. So if you're at a party and you, somebody offers you some drug and you're like, oh, I'm gonna hit that and do my thing and, and they'll be fine. But if they said, before you do this, just wanna let you know that five years from now, you're gonna be under a bridge in LA with no teeth and no clothes and no friends and no change, begging for change. Hit up. Yeah. yeah wow. Well, anybody, you go to a bridge in LA and talk to somebody there, there was that moment, that first time that they did this thing. But what they did was they ascribed to themselves a set of consequences for that action that, that were not in their control. And of course, when you do that, this consequence could, it could happen. But we say, no, that's not the one that's gonna happen to me. And that's what happens on the abortion side as well. So relief, regret, uh, 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 is, is, is a significant aspect of that. And I just try to encourage folks around that. Okay. Well, I think a critical point here is that when faced with consequences, when you and your wife were faced with that adversity, an unplanned pregnancy, you embraced it and you've still gone on to live really successful lives. But it seems like often the conversation in our culture is that unplanned pregnancies, the consequences of having um, sex uh, without, uh, outside of marriage or whatever that looks like are just too much of a disruption in your life. Um, and not only that, but I think in my own life, you know, my f- husband and I, we've been married less than four years. We have two kids under the age of three. And when we, you know, t- we're telling people we were pregnant again, people were saying, um, well, you know how that happens, right? Or really again, you know, and even if it's just in jest, I think our society has really turned from uh, believing that children are a blessing to really yeah. believing that children are more of a burden. So. Yeah. When women are faced with unplanned pregnancies, you know, the only solution a woman, a woman can see, a woman who has dreams or aspirations, is to end it. You know, it's because she's been told by the culture that her life's over and that she just needs to fix it. So a few questions. Um, one, you know, what do you say to that woman? You've kind of already told us the story with your own life, but what do you say to that woman right now who is faced with this decision? Um, and then how do you respond to the notion that men have no say in that um, because they can't they're not you know actually carrying the baby um answer that first and then i think i might have a follow-up question (laughs) sorry okay well i I think look i I think that the the core thing and 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 i'm not discounting the reality of the situation i mean you kind of have to crawl back a little further on this look the um 86 percent of the women that have abortions are unmarried Mm -hmm. Okay, so just let that stat settle in. 
Okay, so so to kind of get to solutions here, you actually have to go back, go back, because the abortion culture is a consequence of a culture that has turned a blind eye to father absence and the impact that that has on women, on children, and on communities, and also that's turned a blind eye to the importance of marriage as a building block for culture. Yeah. And so, so even on the, that's why I, when I think, talk about the life issue, I don't say that I'm pro-life, I say I'm pro-abundant life, right? I don't say I'm pro-life, I'm pro-abundant life, and yeah. I can unpack that a little more, but if, if you want me to, but, but what it means, what the, the, to be pro-abundant life, right, means that you are thinking about this issue, you know, through, you know, the lens of, of John 10, 10, where Christ said, I came that you might have life and then have that life abundantly, right? And what he's talking about here is not just physical life, which is, which is bios, where we get the word biology, but also Zoe, a unique type of spiritual life that only comes from a relationship with God. So when he said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, he's basically saying, I came that you might have, you might link your bias to my Zoe. In other words, that you might, might be a heartbeat that's heaven bound. Okay. So when you start thinking about the issue that way, that, that children, you know, aren't just, that we just don't want them to have life, but have abundant life, then you start to think about this issue differently. So what, how do you help a child have abundant life? Well, if 86% of the women that have abortions are unmarried, that means that, that, you got to be thinking about two things together. It's not just about the sanctity of life, which is where a lot of the pro-life movement tends to focus, but it's also the sanctity of marriage and family and God's design for those things. Mm -hmm. Those things are linked together. And we got that perspective, frankly, in the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. See, Mary, from her human perspective, was facing an unplanned pregnancy, mm -hmm. right, from a human perspective. And, and we'd love to tell the story that what did Mary do? She said, you know, that let it be on to me, as you have said. In other words, you're not a life worth sacrificing. You're a life worth sacrificing for. But what did God do in that narrative to make sure that Mary's unplanned pregnancy wasn't a crisis pregnancy? He sent an angel to Joseph. And Joseph was a man with a plan. And his plan was to put her away quietly, which back then was basically the way that you did an abortion. You, you couldn't put the baby away, so you put the woman and the baby away. And the angel comes to him and says, look, you're a man with a plan. I got a new plan for you, man, and it is this. I want you to be a husband to her and a father to the child growing inside of her. Remember, the first thing that the angel told Joseph was, do not be afraid to take Mary as your, not your baby mama, your boo, your shorty, your wife. <laughs> And so what you see there is that he's affirming the sanctity of marriage and family, even before he had a discussion with Joseph about the sanctity of life. Mm. So in order to get upstream, that means that we have to be focused on trying to build strong families. It's not just about saving a baby. It's about raising a child. Mm -hmm. All of those things together. So in the work that we do, our focus is, yes, we want to reach her, but we also need to reach him. And we need to try to encourage her to tap into her inner Mary. Because Mary was, look, Mary's in the same circumstance that my wife or any other woman facing an unplanned pregnancy. She had hopes and dreams for her life that did not include a child at this time and in this way. That's no different than anyone else. Now, this, obviously, the circumstance of how she got pregnant, but the reality of her pregnancy was exactly the same. She had a culture that would have stoned her. I mean, she, I mean, incredibly vulnerable in that moment. And yet she said, she, she said, no, no, no. There's a life growing inside of, inside of me. It's not a life worth sacrificing, but a life worth sacrificing for, and that's what she did, right? And so then Joseph got that same, same perspective.
So the, the first thing is that really trying to help her understand that, that you may not know what's going to happen next. But scripture says that children are a blessing from the Lord and that to walk in the fullness of that promise is an important thing to do, even though you have all this uncertainty swirling around you. Now, in order to help mitigate some of that uncertainty, a key thing we have to do, which we haven't been doing, frankly, in the pro-life movement to the degree that we need to, is engaging men. Now, that gets to your second question. Why is that? Well, because we have modeled in large measure our the pro-life movement as a um, doppelganger, if you will, <laughs> to the pro-choice movement. Okay. The pro-choice movement says this issue is about a woman and a question mark. And initially, the, the question mark was product of conception. Then it was, I mean, then it, it, just, it, it just went from something that's immutable to something that's immutable, changeable, flexible, like choice. So it's about a woman plus a choice, right? And we on the pro-life side said, no, 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 it's about saving the baby. We have to save the baby. We, we've got to save the baby. That's what this issue is about. And then the pro-choice side started attacking the pro-life side and said, you don't care about women. You just care about saving babies. Ever heard that before? Oh, yeah. And then we said, no, 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 no. We care about saving babies too. So ours is woman plus baby. There's this woman plus question mark. Now, what's the problem with that paradigm? Somebody's missing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's no frame. There's no on-ramp for the man. There's no on-ramp in that paradigm. So we have to throw that entire paradigm out and go back to the paradigm that's, that frankly is laid out in social science and laid out in scripture the sanctity of marriage and family and the sanctity of life. My wife was more, less likely to choose abortion. Why? Because she had a guy who, who, who basically by God's grace tapped into his inner Joseph mm -hmm. yeah. and said to her what Joseph said to Mary, I'll be a husband to you and a father to the child growing in, in, inside of you. And we will walk through these obstacles together. Mm -hmm. And we have to spend just as much time, you know, saving babies. If you I mean, reaching fathers and trying to build strong families as we are in, in saving babies. And I think that frankly, when we frame it that way, um, um, it's harder, right? Mm -hmm. but, but it was an angel that came to Joseph, not a Smurf or a gnome or some other lower form. <laughs> it was an equal call with a different mission. He, had, he was in two missions, husband to her and father to, uh, to, to the child growing inside of her, and then also to provide and to protect. So that uncertainty is there. If you, if you talk to a woman who's, having a, who's at risk for having an abortion, and one of the questions I always, you know, you typically would ask, or people would typically ask, is like, well, you know, does the father know, right? I always ask a second question, which is, why did you tell him? Mm. <laughs> I mean, you didn't tell him so he'd say, I support whatever decision you make. You don't need that. You didn't even tell them because you pay half of the, for the abortion. You could crowdsource with your girlfriends and get, get this done. Now, I think that somewhere inside of her, she had a longing, a desire, mm -hmm. a hope that he would say to her what Joseph said to Mary. That's why she told him. Mm -hmm. You see? And so what we've got to do is we've got to be reaching men to help them step into that. Now, the culture has told men you don't have any say in this. So that's basically, the, it's basically a perspective, no womb, no say. That's been the framework. And uh, honestly, you know, it, it, it's been a cultural narrative. So what the law did, and this explains a lot why men are not as engaged, is one of the things that Roe v. Wade did that we didn't talk about was that 
it actually it delinks fatherhood and motherhood in the womb. Historically, men became fathers at conception and women became mothers at birth. Excuse me, at, at conception as well. So, but now what the law did, it says a woman becomes a mother at a conception and a man becomes a father at birth. Mm-hmm. Rights and responsibilities are linked. If I have no rights to the child at conception, why would I take responsibility for the child at conception? I mean, the, the guys who do are the ones that are married to the mother. But legally, they really have no standing, no say. So we've been telling men for 40 plus years that you ain't a father till the child's born. But what do we need him to do? We need him to do what Joseph did, which was be involved from conception to birth so that so that, that missing support that she needs, mm-hmm. that she's got an assurance there. So we've been telling men to do exactly the opposite of what we need, which is why on the pro-life side is problematic. On the pro-choice side, it's not. I don't need the guy. But on our side, we actually need the guy. We hope at a minimum he'll pay for the baby, but certainly from a from a cultural and biblical perspective, we hope he'll be a husband or her and a father to the child growing aside. So, so men have listened to that over the years and, it, and it's illogical. I hear that all the time, no womb, no say, you know, this, that, and the other. So what you're basically saying is, is that if, that unless you're being impacted directly by whatever is happening, you have no say. Okay, so using that logic, I mean, using that logic, I mean, I'd still be a slave. Mm-hmm. The North didn't have slaves. The South did. The South was saying, no slaves, no say. You, you, y'all wouldn't even be able to vote. But, but, but you see what I'm saying? So the, No, the reason why the North had to say what was going on in the South and the reason why, you know, women, even though they, they, they didn't have property, is because they were impacted by the decision. It's in the same way. The man is impacted by this decision, and we want them to have say because they're impacted by the decision. So I really just encourage men to step into that and not drink the Kool-Aid of the culture. No, fatherhood begins at conception. It begins at conception because the consequences of abortion for the man begin at conception in the same way that they do for the woman. I, I wanted to unpack that issue of slavery a little bit, like you touched on. It, you know, it, it's very timely right now because we're taught we're having these conversations about race. And um, can you talk about how abortion facilities, specifically Planned Parenthood, target the Black com- community? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, when when you when you think about Planned Parenthood, like I'm a businessman by training. Right. So that's my background. So when I came in to the pro-life movement and I, you know, I looked at Planned Parenthood, I mean, a lot of times people look at Planned Parenthood through the, through like their ministry glasses, like, oh, the, you, know, the, the, you know, what's happening there, the destruction of human life and all that stuff. I looked at Planned Parenthood with my market glasses and I realized, oh, wait, this is a consumer business. And, and they are selling a consumer product. Now you can have all the pink bowls and ribbons and all that other stuff. And, But what they basically believe is that abortion is a morally neutral consumer product that women want and need. Like, so if you, if you believe that, which they do, then where will you put your abortion facilities? I mean, if I sell vegan food, I don't put it in a burger neighborhood, right? I put it in a vegan neighborhood. So for them, it's just market, it's just market research and putting these abortion clinics 
in places where they're much likely to have customers because it's a consumer product driven. And, and that makes perfect sense because what you're supposed to do as a woman in order to have an abortion is you're supposed to think of your child as a consumer product. Mm. It doesn't fit into my life right now. I put it out on the curb. You see what I'm saying? So it's that same mentality. So when you walk into there, you, you have to build a, a consumer relationship with this child. And they're a consumer product company that helps you get rid of that. And the alternative, obviously, is to have a covenant relationship with your child, which is right, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that kind of a thing. People don't say, I'm gonna love this child. They only have blue, if they have blue eyes, but not brown. And they don't say that, right? So a lot of this, from my perspective, I mean, you know, the race part is part of it. Um, is part of it, don't get me wrong. But I think the, the bigger issue is it's, it's a consumer product driven kind of way of looking at life and, 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 and babies as sort of a commodity and, and then placing your products and services in a place where um, you're going to be able to get the biggest bang for your, you know, in invested dollars. Now, the part of this that's problematic on a race level is in order for a woman to have an abortion, she has to believe a certain thing. And the thing that she has to believe is that there's, that this baby is a net negative. Mm -hmm. Like nothing good can come from this child. So if she's about to have the abortion and a doctor walks in and says, listen, we got this news. The child that you're about to abort, when they're 17, they're gonna come up with an invention that's gonna make them the richest person in the world. Anyway, let's just continue with the abortion. Whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> what did you say? You think a woman would have an abortion then? Probably not. Why? What changed? Now this child, instead of becoming a net negative, became a net positive. The problem from a race standpoint is black people are 13, 12, 13% of the population and 36, 37% of the abortions with the culture endorsing that and supporting that. And so the message basically from a race perspective is that we believe that black children on average compared to any other kids are a net negative for our society. That's the race part. I don't believe that about myself. I don't believe that about my children. But that's what you have to believe. Otherwise you're saying, so, so why is that? You know what I'm saying? Like, I love Fred Rico Matthews Green. She has this one analogy she uses about if you were in some kind of nature preserve and, and you found, you came into this nature preserve and you found that there were these female animals that were killing their, their children and, you, and, and just killing their babies, rather, just killing them and killing them. What would you do in a nature preserve? Would you say, well, let's make sure they can kill their children and, and assist them in that? Are you guys in wait a minute, there's something wrong here. All the other animals aren't killing their children, their babies, as much as these are. We need to figure out what's wrong here. What's the issue here? Mm -hmm. Well, that's the same way you should look at it here. So for me, that's where the race part comes in. That, that's what you're actually saying as a culture. And oh, by the way, that's actually what Margaret Sanger actually believed. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think you make um, a really good point about Margaret Sanger, and that's that's another conversation, but we do have to, to fully understand this issue. We really need to go back to the beginning, the very genesis of the pro-abortion movement in our country, and um, we will definitely post some links to the point to the fact that Margaret Sanger was racist. She was a eugenicist, and she talked a lot about perfecting the human race, so we can't ignore that question. 
Um, but we also read a blog that you wrote in February during Black History Month, and you highlighted similarities between slavery and abortion. We'll post that article for our listeners because I think it is, um, there are very good points in that and definitely something to be thinking about when considering the current national conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, and I'm going to take a, a second here to read a statement from the About section of CareNet's, web, CareNet's website. So CareNet envisions a culture where women and men faced with pregnancy decisions are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and empowered to choose life for their unborn children and abundant life for their families. Roland, I have to tell you a personal story and the impact that you made on my husband and I. We, about a year or so ago, we attended a pregnancy crisis pregnancy center banquet and you spoke and you really challenged the audience to embrace being pro-abundant life. I had never heard that before and it really opened my eyes about how God desires his children to live abundantly. And so we shouldn't just desire the, desire the bare minimum in the pro-life fight and that's saving the life of the child and supporting the mom post-birth. But rather, we should really be helping foster strong families and dads and moms and kids by enabling to find freedom in the gospel and ultimately to live abundantly through that freedom. And of course, this mentality of being pro-abundant life touches on so much more than just those impacted by abortion. We can also use it to love on our neighbor, the poor, and the marginalized. What is your vision for the, pro, for the phrase pro-abundant life, and where do you see it going on from here? Yeah, no, that, that really, it's a, it's, it's a download from God. And as I kind of mentioned before, it really is based on John 10 and 10. And um, it, it's a framework, it's a framework that helps you move from my standpoint from in, uh, from from uh, inspiration to action because um when, when you start thinking about what it means to be pro-abundant life if, if you were to envision that, that that sort of a roof over kind of a perspective right uh, pro-abundant life john 10 10 well this roof needs a couple of pillars to hold it up and, and that first pillar is god's design for family and i talked a bit about that earlier about you know uh, that 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 what, what did god what was god's response to an unplanned pregnancy, he created a family. That's what he did, and and the inspiration there. And so, even if that woman never marries that guy, you still want to help her relink fatherhood, motherhood, sex, and marriage, and God's design for those things, so that she's not a repeat client. You know what I mean? So we we don't we're not a retail you know consumer based retail business. Our, our sign can't say thank you, come again. You know, <laughs> no, we we are a Christian ministry. Our sign says you know, I thank you, don't come again. In other words, we follow what Christ followed in the, from the perspective that Christ said, come as you are, but don't stay as you came. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so God's design for family is the first, is the first piece of that. And that's what we should be solving for, either helping that couple build a strong family, which reduces the risk for abortion, for either one in that couple and also for the child who's conceived in that context. But also, even if that doesn't happen, for them, for the, for the woman, for the guy, um, to have that value set so that they're not repeat clients, so they're not at risk again. So that's that first pillar that holds it up. But you know, you need another pillar to hold it up. And it really, it's the second pillar is God's call to discipleship. And this is where, you know, I think for, particularly for Christians, um, you know, if you're an atheist, you can be pro-life but you can't be pro-abundant life That's because right. if you're an atheist, you don't have God's design, uh, God's design and God's call to discipleship. And that really is that second pillar. And what God kind of downloaded to me on that was really this notion that if helping someone who's facing a pregnancy decision is a good work, then um, 
all good works that Christians do are linked to discipleship. We don't do good works for the reason the culture does. That's like social services or whatever. Not a bad thing, but it's not the gospel. We right. do good work for the same reason that Jesus did, so that folk might become disciples of Jesus Christ. And so really that second pillar is really linking the life issue to the good works perspective and connecting it to the Great Commission, mm -hmm. right? So the call for us to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ and to teach them to obey all that I have taught you. So my encouragement and, and with this in terms of where this is going is really for Christians to primarily see the life issue as a discipleship issue. Water for the thirsty, food for the hungry, clothes for the naked, right? Compassion for the pregnant. Yeah. It's not something that's outside of the church that the church cares about. It's actually inside the church. It's a core mission of the church because this is a on-ramp to discipleship. And I find a lot of Christians um, since don't view it that way. They haven't, they haven't thought about it. Well, this is a good work. This should equal discipleship. So they view it either through a political narrative mm. or through a material support narrative. So you ask them, are you pro-life? And they say, yes. And they, and you say, well, prove it. And they tell you who they voted for. Don't get me wrong. They'll do it. They'll tell you who they voted for. Right. Mm. You know, but and again, abortion is certainly an issue that has a political component mm -hmm. and requires a material support response. But it's not primarily either one of those things from a Christian perspective. From yeah. a Christian perspective, it's primarily a discipleship issue. Jesus laid that out clearly when, when he was asked, you know, when he was given the coin and asked, should he pay taxes? He says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto God what is God's. But what did Caesar care about? The material and the political. That was his world. Jesus wasn't saying you, can, you don't have to be in that world, but he's saying there's a higher thing. And so when you make disciples, then that takes the life issue and brings it directly into the church, which means that we need people in the church to become teams that will then go and help someone who's facing a pregnancy decision. Not just your treasure, but your time and your talent. And we have a resource called Making Life Disciples, which you can go to makinglifedisciples.com or to Karenet's website, but makinglifedisciples.com, which is a small group curriculum that we developed to help the small groups in churches start coming alongside folks who are facing a, a pregnancy decision um, and help them, uh, help them have compassion, help them have the compassion, hope, help, and discipleship uh, that God wants them to have. So we've got so many churches with so many small groups and so many, often small groups are about us loving us. Yes. What if small groups became an army of us loving them? Yeah. That's how, by the way, you, that's how you hit that missing support, right? So, cause when a woman is considering abortion, it's not the birth that she's afraid of. I mean, this is about nine months and one second. And if she doesn't see that she has the support, she's much more likely to have an abortion, which is why married women are less likely to abort than unmarried women. So we, when she doesn't have someone who says, I'll be a husband to you and a father to uh, the child growing inside of you, that's the role of the church to come and support these, what I call cultural orphans and widows, mm. right? Religion that's pure and faultless, right? You care for the orphans and widows in their distress. Well, when that was written, what was an orphan? It was a child or a father. What was a widow? It was typically a woman without a husband, a mother without a husband. So, so the church has a very specific call to these cultural orphans and widows, where the husband is not husband, proverbial husband and uh, proverbial father is not dead, but is said to the mother and the child, "You're dead to me." And so, it's really this shift of viewing the life issue primarily through the lens of discipleship 
and seeing someone who's facing an unplanned pregnancy or a pregnancy decision as an opportunity to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and viewing it that way. Uh, and we found that that's been very motivating for, for folks. So we started this podcast in an effort to help make um, our listeners a part of the solution. So for those who are really saying, okay, yes, I'm tracking with you. You've already given the make, makelifedisciples.com. Is that what make, you said? makinglifedisciples.com. Disciples.com. What are other resources that you yourself have to encourage fathers or to encourage women in crisis? Um, or what are other ways they could be involved through CareNet? Give us some resources for our listeners. Yeah. yeah. If you, obviously, if you come to our resource center, which is called Care Source, there's lots of resources, particularly on engaging men. I mean, one of the big challenges that the pregnancy centers face is that they need more volunteers to actually come alongside and engage the men. Mm. Um, Key. We talked to women who were having a, who were, who've had abortions. We did a national survey of women who had abortions, and we asked them who was the most influential in your decision to abort. And it was the it was the guy far and away, not Planned Parenthood, not I mean, far and away. It was the guy, and so we've got to help him, basically help them, right? Help her, help him, help him, help them. And so there's a, a tremendous need there. There's lots of resources on our site, like things that you, if you go up to the free resource place, like how to talk to someone who's facing a pregnancy decision, the things to say, the things not to say. Um, but a lot of it is really is, a lot of it is, is, is more, is just very practical. You know, I, a situation I'm um, involved in right now, there's a, a, a family that, that we've gotten connected to through the Making Life Disciples uh, program at our local pregnancy center. This woman has multiple children, father's not engaged, and she's pregnant again. And she's at risk. Um, you know, and per particularly during this uh, coronavirus time, you know, she has basically six kids and, you know, she doesn't know what to do. Well, folks in our church are coming alongside her. Now, whether, what decision she makes one way or the other, and obviously we want her to, to, to make a life decision, but it doesn't matter whether she does in the sense of what we, our response should be the same right? And, and with very, very practical things to help someone who's facing a pregnancy decision. I asked her a couple of days ago, I said, so how do you get your trash to the curb? She said, well, because I, I, I can't afford to pay for trash pickup. So every two weeks, I load my kids in the car and I put the trash and I drive over to the dump. I got all these guys in church to have pickup trucks. I'm like, let's go pick up her trash. I mean, really, life decisions need life. So it's not that complicated. So if you if you start to think about it, like if someone was in a in a in a you know in a lake drowning, right? You would you would kind of get out, try to get out to them, and you try to throw them life preservers. And just imagine if you have so many life preservers, it's just impossible for them to drown. And what are those life preservers that, that folks have? Well, I need a place to live. Got an extra room. I can't get to my prenatal visits. Can you watch my kids? Um, we've been in this I've been in this relationship with this guy for X number of time. We talked about marriage, but we don't know what that looks like. Well, you've been married for a long time. You walk alongside this young couple to help them see what a godly marriage looks like. I mean, these are all things that we can do that are practical things that reinforce the life decision. And these are the decisions. These are the things that this woman needs to know. And you've got to be involved while she's making that decision from conception to birth. But then also, you need to walk alongside her after that. Because remember. That verse says, and teach them to obey all that I have taught you. Well, you can't do that at a pregnancy center from conception to birth in the midst of a difficult pregnancy. That's the role for the church. And that's why, from my standpoint, 
pregnancy centers can do evangelism, which that first initial thing, but we can't do discipleship. That's the work of the church because it's a long-term process. And, and for me, I, I get very excited about that. You know, it's north of 400,000 churches and, and, and there's what, roughly 3,500 pregnancy centers. Imagine if just 10% of the churches were doing what I'm talking about. Yes. That doubles the capacity. And, and Planned Parenthood and others, they can't compete with that. See, our secret sauce is not a building. Our secret sauce is people, and people are mobile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we can go there and meet people at their point of need. So Making Life Disciples, the resource that does the training, basically is, is inspired. So I'm, like, it might sound like a broken record here, but that's the big thing. But start thinking about the life issue that way. And I told her, I said, look, I want you to think about your life and unpack it, like the, the, the needs that you have. If you ask me, would you carry this 150-pound backpack with me? I said, well, I might be able to carry it a little bit. But if in that 150-pound backpack, there are 2.5-pound weights in there. And, and you said, well, would you carry one of these weights for me? Well, I could do that all day, forever. But, that's what it, but the body of Christ needs to go in her backpack, start taking those weights out, start taking those weights out. And as we do that, we're modeling God's design for family. And that was really the hope for me. Um, I grew up, as I said, without my father uh, and uh, in a single mother home. And when I got my girlfriend pregnant, the thought of being a father without being a husband was not a construct that even connected with me. Why? Because I went to church and I saw Pastor Cup loving his wife and his children and various other people. And so as a little black boy, that's what was modeled for me. So if someone's coming from a community where they've been to more baby showers and wedding showers, exactly how they're supposed to get this pro-abundant life vision that links together the sanctity of marriage and family and the sanctity of life. Well, the people of the book, the people in church have that. So again, it's not just our treasure, it's our time and our talent and being intentional that way uh, in order to do that. So if you check out Making Life Disciples, that's a a way you can get trained and and also connecting with your local pregnancy center and saying, look, my church wants to come alongside folks who are facing pregnancy decisions and we want to support them. And then the ultimate goal is for them to become disciples of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think as, as those who say that we are pro-abundant life, we should be desiring more than just an end of Roe v. Wade. Yes. No, we, we, should, we should want to be building disciples and helping raise strong families, like you said. But Roland, yep. thank you so much for this conversation. We really enjoyed your encouragement and perspective. And listeners, for more information on CareNet and to get connected with a pregnancy center near you, please visit care-net.org. And please also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, give us a rating, and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find us on all the major social media platforms and at engagewitheagleforum.com. Until next time, from your house to the state house to the White House, this is Engage with Eagle Forum.